Hey guys, this is Saba Long, the host of Where the Party At, your favorite political podcast. I'm so excited to bring back our series, Who Runs Atlanta, where we are featuring this time the at-large candidates for the Atlanta School Board. There are five candidates, and we've got all five doing interviews with us. Take a listen to these interviews and make sure you make an informed choice to vote on or before November 7th. Jessica Johnson, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. So we are back again with our segment called Who Runs Atlanta? So we've done this around Atlanta elections. We're doing it now for the school board because we know the school board race is so important. Before we get into who you are, why you're running, all that, I've got some questions for you that are a little different, okay? Okay, I think I'm ready. All right, so last time we did a How Atlanta Are You? Mm -hmm. But this time we're going to do a kids version of it. Okay. All right. So what's the best place in Atlanta to take a kid? Wow. Um, I I guess probably Piedmont Park because there's just so much free space and they always have something fun happening there. That's a good one. And then if you think about your favorite kids book, mm -hmm. what book would that be? Oh, I love the Dr. Seuss collection. So give me a cat in the hat, any version of it, I'm in. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Dr. Seuss. And then thinking about the zoo, Atlanta Zoo, mm -hmm. what zoo animal creeps you out? Huh. Um, so I, I'm really not a fan of probably the monkeys, um, only because I had this really <laughs> crazy experience at a safari where one got a little too close and personal. So I'm just not a big monkey fan. they try fan. to like steal your You stuff? know, they were grabbing things in places and spaces. I'll just Oh, okay. <laughs> a little fresh monkey. Yeah. All right. And then the last question, what is the best movie or TV show about a school? Hmm. Or that's in a school, that's like placed in a school. Oh, man. A movie or a TV show. You know what? What is that? I can't think of the name of the show, but there's a black woman developed that. Oh, recent. Abbott Elementary. Yes. I love that show because it just kind of brings a lot of satire to like the everyday nuances and logistics of running a school. Yeah, that's a good yeah. one. That's a good one. Mm-hmm. All right, so now we're going to go into the little harder questions. But first, sure. just wanted to warm you up, okay? <laughs> okay, cool. So when you think about education, um, I want to start with your education and your experience. So tell me what your favorite childhood memory of school was. Um, so I am a third generation educator and, and so just grew up first understanding the importance of education and being surrounded by other people's children in my home on a regular basis. And so when I think about my own educational experiences, for me, probably the, the best moment, um, was when a teacher noticed a, a particular gift that I had in writing 
and asked me if I would be willing to write a play. And that seems like a really tall order at the time. I was in eighth grade and she she tasked me with that. And I think that really put me on this trajectory to dream and think bigger about what I'm capable of doing. That play got put on in my city theater and, and then surrounding areas. I was able to travel and talk to young people about drug-free, gang-free lives. And I think that set the tone for me to start asking myself, you know, what is the way that I can use my gifts, talents, and resources to have an impact on other people? So the play was about? So it was about young people getting involved in gangs. Back then, I'm, I'm not going to date myself, but gangs were just becoming a thing. Um, and it was this about- was in the, the age of dare. Yes, dare, all of that. So so you understand. So it was during that time period. And so I wrote a, a play that exposed the, like, the after effects of, of gang involvement and drug use for young people. And at the end, I would get young people in my city and in West Tennessee to commit to drug-free, gang-free lives. So. Got it. And when did you come to Atlanta? So I moved to Atlanta in 2008. Um, And what brought you here? So I initially cost of living. I was living in the D.C. area. I went to Howard for undergrad and American for grad school and and had already started my nonprofit that um, helps students pay for college, the Scholarship Academy. And I heard about small learning communities here in Atlanta, the kind of how they were going to have the schools and every school is going to have a college and information center in it. And I had done some training work with, with then Project Grad Atlanta. And I said, I think the work that I'm doing to connect low-income first-generation students to money to pay for college could find a home here in Atlanta since every school was supposed to have this amazing resource for, for them to connect students to college and or career. Got it. So thinking about how your experience was as a child and what influenced you then, what does that, how does that translate into your current position on the school board? Sure. So for, since I moved to Atlanta, I have partnered with Atlanta Public Schools in a number of ways, whether we are doing scholarship boot camps or um, actually training college advisors in all of the high schools, how to be more intentional and connecting students to free money. And so have been a partner and seen how great it can be when students are connected to resources. And also equally, I've been able to see how challenging it could be when the infrastructure and systems aren't in place and a child has an opportunity, but the school is creating the the barrier. Um, And so so I kind of had my first entryway into this particular role as serving on the APS Equity Advisory Board. And so I worked with a number of community leaders to help draft what is now APS's equity policy and said, these are the specific ways that APS is not getting it right now. And these are and these are kind of the guidelines we would like to see as a community to set the tone. And so um, when the opportunity came for um, the appointment, because I was a appointed to the board in January, I really was looking for a way to use my thought leadership and education, my experience of working with Atlanta Public Schools, and just my passion for young people and creating educational opportunities. So I raised my hand, and there were four finalists, and and I was appointed to the position in January and have been serving for a really robust 10 months now. 10 months, and this is your first time on the ballot. This is my first time on the ballot this November, and so I will be looking forward to checking the box with my name as the incumbent on November 7th. Got it. So something you just said about equity might need a little bit more information. So why would a school district that's predominantly Black serving Black students 
need an equity plan? So what, so we have to look at how zip codes create barriers and really separate our city. We, we know that we live in the most inequitable city in the country. And so when you take that into consideration and you're asking, you know, why, why would there still be inequity? You know, you got to follow the money lines and say there are some schools that in addition to what the, the school district is able to create for their budget, they're able to fundraise and close gaps and have extra tutoring and extra summer programming and all of the resources their students need. And other communities may not have that level of access. And so even though from the the school budget, you know, like some sides of town get up to 25000 per student while others get nine, we still see huge gaps in what's available. We, we still see huge gaps in the number of teachers who are trained and, and certified to, to provide like advanced course offerings for students. And I think that Money isn't the excuse. You know, we had the pandemic. That's no longer an excuse. We have, we really have a responsibility to, to make every school a great place for students to succeed across the district. Now, correct me if I'm wrong, but the school board budget is somewhere around $1.6 billion. It sure is. So then why is it that some schools are getting 20 something thousand dollars mm-hmm. and others are getting 9,000? And there's so much money, why is it not already distributed equitably? So every school gets a baseline budget. So you get some money from the state, you get the money where you can say every school will have these baseline services no matter what. Now it comes to how many, if a school wants additional social workers or if a school wants to make sure that they have a resource officer there or a parent liaison, it's the extra things that we know our students need to be healthy and whole and academically prepared um, that are not included in that baseline budget. And so when you have a school that's at the $9,000 range, it means they're not a Title I school, so they're not getting that extra allocation for Title I resources. And then um, explain Title I for folks who may not be familiar. So Title I is federal money that comes as an additional support for students in lower poverty areas and schools that need additional supports and resources. Um, and so there's all these different money lines that are pouring in to make up this student success funding formula. And, you know, don't want to get too far into the weeds, but, but I think it's time to change the formula. Um, I think Mm. that one of the things I am hoping to accomplish as a member of the budget commission is to really pull back the layers of the budget and say, and ask principals and ask teachers, what is it that you need to ensure that our students can read, that they are able to, to navigate, you know, their mathematical equations and that they're ready for college and career and build a budget off of what people are, what they tell us versus off of, you know, someone sitting on a day and saying, I think, you know, literacy is a good thing to fund. I really want to start from the bottom and rebuild our budget from the ground up. So that brings me to my next question is, what is the role between the superintendent and the board? What is the superintendent responsible for versus what the board is responsible for? So, so it's a, it's a very nuanced relationship, right? So the board is responsible for hiring and managing the superintendent. And so just like that's our one employee for the district, it's my responsibility as a board member to hold he or she accountable for the implementation of the vision and goals and, and policies that we set for the district. And so we expect that superintendent 
superintendent to then hire a really solid leadership team that's going to bring us the best curriculum, the best recommendations. And then we approve those kind of like a checks and balances system to say, yes, we agree. We're all on the same page that these are all of the pieces that it's going to take to educate our students, to make our teachers feel supported and make our staff feel like they are valued within the district. And then one of the challenges I know has been during this election is some concern about superintendent turnover. Sure. Right. The fact that uh, if my math is correct, I think there have been three superintendents in the past five years or somewhere Mm -hmm. in that time frame. What is the role of the board as it relates to superintendent turnover? Because the board is hiring and firing. Uh So is it that the board is not making good picks? Like what's the what's the situation there? Help people understand that. So I've only been on the board since January, so I can't own or hold, you know, what happened in previous leadership. But there's been one leadership right. change. There has been one been on leadership change. Right. So so I'll speak to that specifically. Um it is our role to first communicate with a superintendent what our expectations are and then to hold them accountable throughout that process and let them know if they're meeting and exceeding or if they're not meeting, really push and find ways to ensure that students come first in every scenario. And so what I'll say is in this particular scenario, the board made a decision that it was time for a new leadership. Um, I believe one of the best things that we did was bring in interim superintendent, Dr. Battle, who who had over 20 years of experience in the district already. And so she is coming in to help us kind of really accelerate some of, some of the, um, opportunities there are to lean in in the district, whether it's through working with transportation, looking at what's happening in special ed services, and making sure that the next superintendent that comes in can start off day one pushing forward our vision, mission, and goals and isn't trying to kind of get a handle on solving some of the key challenges that we've been experiencing over the last few years. Is there a concern that it's going to be hard to find the right person? So initially, you know, because it's like, what is the reputation? No one wants to come into a space where they there's a fear of they might get fired or a culture of fear and intimidation. What I will say is Atlanta is a great place to live and work. Um, and what we're hearing is that that there are a number of individuals who would still be excited that would be high quality that want to come into the district and they're watching how we navigated. I think one of, I'm proud of the way that our last, we navigated the last superintendent's transition as a board so that people would feel comfortable. Like we know how to handle business, the business of the district and which we still will be able to attract a leader that can come in and do the work. Okay. So a bit of a hard question for you. Okay. What do you think is most broken in Atlanta public schools right now? Mm-hmm. So when I look across the district, um, what I hear the most is the concern about our students' ability to read. And with less than 33% of our students reading on grade level, it like reading is a fundamental right. And you said less than 33% of our students are reading on grade level. Um, and these are primarily black students. Yes. And so if we get into the demographics, it's much, you know, it's significantly lower for, for African American students specifically. And that to me is definitely an injustice to our students. What's and- causing that? So there's there's a number of factors that have gone into that. You know, there was a selection of curriculum that um, that 
kind of promoted more sight reading than the science of reading. And so we've got to get back to the science of reading. But that means that all of our teachers need to be retrained in the science of reading because they have not received that training. That means our curriculum has to be totally changed. And it means we have to look at what other states have done to fix that problem and lean in and meet it. So if I look at the budget from last year, we only put $1.2 million towards literacy. And so- Out of if, a one point something billion dollar budget. Right. And so if we're saying that this is the biggest problem that we have, we have to put our money where our mouth is. And so what I want love to see is us fund literacy specialists in every single school so that students can get on grade level and those who are on grade level can continue to excel in their reading proficiency. Um, I would love to see- us shift the curriculum and then think about what are the summer programmings that we could offer as enrichment and opportunities. I don't know that the 30 minutes a day that we extended is enough to to really kind of tap into that big of a challenge. So I think about when I learned to read, mm -hmm. my mom was a key part of me learning how to read. Sure. What is the role of parents in this situation, we're talking about less than 33% of students in APS mm -hmm. are not reading at their grade level. What's the role of the family? So I think that this is, it's it's everybody's problem, right? If we think from parents down to city of Atlanta, the pipe, this whole pipeline, like we all have to lean in and be hands-on in deck. I look at what they're doing in Marietta, for instance, where um, when babies are delivered, they those doctors have the coaching to talk to the families about how to start building those literacy habits in your child, reading to them on a regular basis. And so if we really looked at it as this is the whole city's problem and think about all of the ways that families are intersecting and engaging throughout the city, I think we, we would have a much stronger chance of solving this challenge within, well, not completely solving, but, you know, really um, accelerating the, the reading proficiency rates of our students across the district. So if I'm a teacher dealing with that, mm -hmm. it feels uh, I would almost demoralizing is the word that came to mind. Mm -hmm. What is the teacher's perspective on these types of challenges? Like, what are you hearing from teachers? So I've been hearing teachers have been asking for years for us to change the curriculum. And and I think that we owe it to them to respond in a... In a and who, who's responsible for the curriculum? Is that the superintendent? Is that the board? So, so school board does not pick the curriculum. I am not, you know, a license. There's people who get doctorates to, to make those recommendations. We approve the curriculum that is brought before us as a board. And so it would be the administration, the person who's over the chief academics officers. Those are the people who we are trusting to make the selection and identification. And so what we've seen in other states is it's becoming a requirement statewide that schools revert back to phonics and, and that sign of reading. That's and so we don't have to wait on state of Georgia to say, oh yeah, that makes sense. Here in Atlanta, we can say this will be a priority for our students. We're going to make the change. We're going to do it right now and we're going to fully fund it so that it can be successful in our schools. I don't have kids, but I think about friends who either have kids that are about to go into public school mm -hmm. or kids who are refusing to put their kids in public school. Sure. Why would someone want to put their child in an APS school? Like, how can APS assure that their child is going to have a quality education? 
So, you know, parents have honestly been asking me that question for the last few months as we, and more so when their child becomes middle school and high school age, because we have to be honest, every school doesn't have the right course sequence that they believe their child is going to need to be ready for college and career. And so to answer your question, why should you put your child I think about all of the great leaders that have come out of our Atlanta public school system over the years. If you think about even our own mayor, um, you think about people like Michael Julian Bond. There, there's so much history and legacy and pride in the our Atlanta public school system. And, and I think that we have a unique opportunity to build that back with community support. Um, and so I think that once we change the curriculum, it's happening in literacy, it's happening in math. We have the right, we're, you know, Dr. Battle is an amazing leader and she's making some really significant changes this year. And we're listening more. As a board member, I spend most of my time talking to people in the community, talking to people in their homes and getting, you know, behind the PowerPoints. I don't, I don't want to make decisions based off of what I see off a of PowerPoint. I'm making my decisions off of the conversations I'm having with families that our decisions are impacting the most. And I think that I have a number of colleagues who are like-minded in that way. And so we're, we're in this unique moment where APS can absolutely get it right. And if we're not getting it right, I, I would challenge people to hold me personally accountable and keep pushing until we can we see the tangible changes that we need for for all of our kids. So Atlanta is having a chronic absenteeism challenge with students not going to class for one reason or another. How are you hearing and seeing about this as you go around the district? And I believe you're serving citywide, so you're seeing this across the city. Uh What are those those barriers? What's causing children to not show up to class? So I actually had an opportunity to ask that very question to a group of social workers that that I met just at a picnic, and and then I asked them to come and present for our board meeting in December so we could really look at the data and the gaps. And so my question is, what's happening and what's available? What is the district doing to directly address it? Um, One of the big challenges that they mentioned was that a lot of students are homeless and um or home insecure. So they may not be in a location where they could actually get to school the normally way, the normal way that they would. Some students don't have the appropriate transportation to get to school, or some students are um, fearful of coming to school. You know, you just have to name those things and be honest about it. I was meeting with some parents last night and their student is straight A's in dual enrollment and she doesn't want to come to school because it's not necessarily the safest place to be. And that's not okay. So we have to say, how do we make our schools safer? How do we make our schools more welcoming so that students want to come? You know, we one of the ways that we are addressing it is by improving the nutrition system. And so we know if that's the only meal that our students might get that day, make it a good one. <laughs> so these are simple things that we can do. And as leadership is properly fund some of the barriers that we know, but also we need to put a parent liaison in every school so we can we can accurately know what's happening. We have the resources with social workers who can do the home visits and really get that information and try to to remove some of the barriers that our families are experiencing that keeps them from coming into school. And then for the safety part, we just have to we have to do our part and make sure that students who are disrupting the classroom day and making the school an intimidating space for other students, that we're handling those issues abruptly and appropriately so that our, our schools are a safe place for everybody. 
So when I think about homeless students, mm-hmm. students who are not able to get food outside of the outside of being in class in school. Mm-hmm. I think about the city council mm-hmm. and what's the role in the mayor's office. So what's the role of the council and the mayor in helping to address some of these systemic issues that families in Atlanta are facing, therefore the children are having to deal with? So I think the other great thing about this moment in time is that Atlanta Public Schools has a great relationship with City of Atlanta, and we are meeting more regularly than I think I've seen um, these two entities meet in years. So we've talked to the mayor about affordable housing options because some of our teachers can't even afford to live in the City of Atlanta. I'd probably say most teachers can't. (laughs) (laughs) Right. To afford to live in the City of Atlanta. And so we're, we're looking at, can we create teacher villages? What are the the things that we can do and, put, and move our money towards. Atlanta Public Schools is one of the largest landowners in the city. So we have the potential to do some things differently and disrupt some spaces and, and work with the city to navigate some of those challenges collectively. And so affordable housing would just be one option. But even if we're looking at, um, you know, some of the food programs that are available, some of the rec centers, how do we really create those intentional pipelines? So we know our students are get, being served until they go to bed and then they're able to get up the next day ready to learn excited about learning and knowing that they are connected to a pipeline of community resources i really believe that the education of our students is a full community affair so i've asked you about the city right what's the role of the council and the mayor's office what about the state Mm -hmm. are there things that the state can be doing either from a funding standpoint or a policy standpoint that would help aps do its job better Two things. So um, the state budget is not much. When we look at the percent of the pie that the state gives us to educate 50,000 students in the city of Atlanta, it's nowhere near enough. They're not funding all of our teacher positions. They're just funding the core academic positions. I don't think people know that. And so we have to come with, you know, local resources in order to, to fill our budget. And then there's a lot of state mandates that are not funded. And so it looks nice for a, a state politician to get up there and say, we're going to do this for everybody. They don't have to fund that. We do. <laughs> and so Can you give an example? Um, so when they change the health insurance uh, packages and um, increase the number of people, employees that would be eligible for health care. That was not fully funded by the state. And so the city had to step up and say, we're going to take a portion of that on our own. And so some of those mandates that look good, even the teachers pay raise, APS had to pay a large portion of that, of that match. And so we want to think about not just saying great things and setting great policies, but really connecting with school districts like Atlanta Public Schools and saying, what is the actual need and how do we shift the formula so it's not so much of a burden on the district? Let's pivot and talk a little bit about the election. Okay. So early voting is underway. The last day to vote is November 7th. My understanding is that the early voting numbers are incredibly low. Yes. Why is that? Why do it five out of nine seats are up for election? Why don't why don't why aren't people paying attention to the election? So right now the numbers I saw were less than fifteen hundred people have voted um, in the entire city. In the entire city. I think the largest district had maybe four hundred votes. 
Um, and, and that really is disappointing to me personally as a lover of education. And so what I'm hearing is two things. People are saying, I don't have children in the system. And I have to say, you do understand that if you have strong schools, you'll have strong communities. <laughs> like they are the foundation of strong communities in general, because there's so many resources and opportunities and ways that people can plug into their, their individual school, even if they don't have children that we're missing out on. If that's, if that is the narrative. The second thing is that this is an off year, right? So there's nothing else big on the ticket. The school board is the only thing on the ballot right now. And so you have to be paying attention. We're not, you know, getting all the news attention. We're not you know, having big rallies and those kinds of things to talk about it. But you know, 51% of your tax dollars go towards the school boards, the, the school district, not the school board. Let me make sure I'm clear on that part. Go towards the school district. So 51% of your ta your city taxes go to the schools. And so even if you don't have a child, um, this is an important issue. It, it really it affects the overall health of our city as a whole. Um, and I, I don't think people have an understanding of what the, what school board members actually do. Um, you know, I get text messages all the time. My child's bus is late. Yes. Right. But there's so many other ways that you could level my personal advocacy to make your school a better place for all children. And so I think that people have to think, really understand the role of school board members and how to interact and how to advocate and how to engage and understand we are responsible for approving a $1.6 billion budget. We're responsible for for managing the one person who, who has the oversight of the impact and student outcomes of 50,000 and students. And so when you, when you start talking about it that way, a lot of people will, will get drawn in. But just honestly, I'm talking to people every single day that still don't know an election is happening. And what would you say is at stake in this election? When I think about the decisions that we are preparing to make in the six months after the election, we will be hiring a new superintendent. We will be approving a new budget that hopefully focuses on literacy in a very significant way. Um, we will be making a decision on 16 different properties that will be released for public use. And a lot of communities have come to us asking to make it community centers or affordable housing. And so in almost every bucket, there's a lot of important decisions that you really want someone who is informed coming into the role, not someone who's figuring it out as they come along, um, to, to be ready to make on the behalf of our students and teachers and administrators. And you have one opponent. Yes. Why you? So a number of reasons why I, I would say I, I strongly believe I'm the best candidate. Um, and I would not be doing this work if I didn't believe that I had the the skill sets first to have a significant impact on the lives of children throughout the city of Atlanta. So I run a nonprofit, a nationally recognized nonprofit organization that's helped students get more than $60 million in private scholarships. So I'm, I am familiar with what it takes to get outcomes for our students in a specific tangible area. College and career readiness is one of the four core goals of our um, student outcomes focused governance model for the board. But also I have a really deep understanding of federal budget. 
budgets and management and governance. I manage a team of 20 right now. And so when you're looking for who's the right person for a role, you want the skill set to match the responsibilities. And I think that's the biggest difference between my opponent and myself. Um, just really those, those one-to-one matches of skill sets that it's going to take to actually do the work day to day as a board member. And then two, my familiarity with the district. So I worked specifically with Atlanta public schools for over 15 years and came in with a, a knowledge of the clusters and the neighborhoods and the concerns. I personally sat at a school for two and a half hours for, for one of my own students saying, he's going to get into college. I need this one piece of paper. Let's get it done. Right. And so I think that because I have that nuance and just my experience serving on previous boards, I'm ready to do the work. Plain and simple. I am ready to do the work. All right. Just to close out, Jessica, if you will just look into the camera and tell folks why they should vote for you, how to vote for you, where to find information about you, all that. All right. My name is Jessica Johnson. I am running to retain my seat as the at-large seat nine representative on the Atlanta Public School Board. And I believe you should vote for me because I am unapologetic about ensuring that every student, regardless of their zip code, has equal access to college and or career. And I, and I will work diligently to ensure that the, the school district honors its commitment to put to, to give students the resources they need. Um, if you want to learn more about me or my campaign, you can visit my website, www.jessicajohnson4aps.com. Again, www.jessicajohnson4aps.com. Jessica, thank you for being on Where the Party At. Always a pleasure to have smart folks on who are committed to making Atlanta better. Thank you so much. I really enjoyed the opportunity to share more. This is an amazing platform. I appreciate you having me. 